Orcas are not taking nature's revenge, but we should. By Max Haven, published September 24th, 2020 in Roar Magazine. Last week, wildfires raged mercilessly on America's Pacific coast, and the Gulf of Mexico continued to endure an almost unprecedented frequency of hurricanes and tropical storms. But it was across the ocean, in the Strait of Gibraltar, that we saw one of the most dramatic and tragic examples of capitalism's climate chaos, a gravely endangered community of orcas attacking boats, as if in coordinated but reckless fury. Scientists who have dedicated their lives to studying this hyper-intelligent whale species are baffled and alarmed at this highly unusual behavior. They have risked a cardinal sin of biology, attributing human-like anthropomorphic explanations to animal behavior, describing the animals as angry, pissed off, and even vindictive. The orcas have every reason to be. Their habitat has been interrupted by increasingly busy global shipping lanes. In 2014, the 13-kilometer-wide strait, which separates the European and African continents, saw over 110,000 vessels, which represented half of the world's maritime trade, a third of its oil and gas, and 80% of the goods and gas consumed in the European Union. On top of the massive disturbance of gargantuan tankers, the orcas have other problems. Bluefin tuna fishers from Spain and Portugal resent the onerous and costly measures they are forced to take to protect the endangered whales. They often look the other way as fishing lines and nets ensnare or injure the animals, or use various weapons to scare them off their prey. These and other factors, warming and acidifying oceans, for instance, have affected the orcas for years, diminishing their local population to a mere 50 souls. But it seems to have been the uptick in ocean-going traffic amidst the relaxation of lockdown, notably the return of pleasure craft and ferries, that has driven the orcas to what appears to many observers to be a kind of suicidal vengeance. They are coordinating ramming attacks on ships much larger than them, even conscripting precious juvenile whales to the cause. Those of us whose hearts break almost daily to witness the ecocidal destruction that capitalism is wreaking on the planet's animals and ecosystems might be forgiven for saluting these cetacean avengers. They might appear to us like grimly determined cinematic superheroes, gallantly if tragically fighting one last battle to defend their home and their species from annihilation. Along with the horrific fires of the Pacific coast, such images encourage us to imagine and envision the long-overdue revenge of nature itself, the moment when some sort of planetary ecological consciousness finally rises up and gives us humans what's coming to us. In the early days of the ongoing pandemic, this narrative was mobilized by no less than Pope Francis to explain how our sinful, ecologically destructive ways created the conditions for zoomorphic viruses like SARS-CoV-2. There is a tempting neatness to this narrative, and God knows, by any measure, what we have done to the planet in the name of progress and profit deserves revenge. We also have literally seen this countless times before, from sci-fi cult classics to the subgenre of animal horror, including notably the 1977 film Orca, to blockbusters like Jurassic Park or Avatar. Stories about nature's revenge, or revenge on behalf of nature, are familiar and satisfying. Apropos of whales, the fascinating classic Moby Dick is ultimately about the revenge of nature in the form of a, the malicious, eponymous white whale. 
But for those of us who hope to see the mobilization of humanity towards the end of this system of ecological destruction, the revenge of nature story does not do us good service. Ultimately, it reproduces many of the fundamental ideological mistakes and mystifications that power and justify ecocidal capitalism in the first place. First, much like the charismatic term the Anthropocene, the revenge of nature narrative misidentifies the source of the problem as humanity in general. The real culprit is the particular system of global human and environmental exploitation and disposability, capitalism. The reality is that we humans have, throughout our diverse history, found many ways of living in dynamic balance with natural forces. For many indigenous civilizations, for, for instance the Anishinaabe on whose lands I live today, this relationship with non-humans is a central part of an ethical, political, cultural, and spiritual system. Capitalism is by far the most profoundly destructive of several modern economic systems that have despoiled the Earth's ecosystems. And unlike other systems, for all their many faults, capitalism has proven itself to be completely, disastrously ill-equipped to manifest the kind of coordination that would be necessary to halt ecological destruction. In a nutshell, this system drives each nation, industry, and firm to compete with one another to avoid meaningful environmental cooperation and regulation in the name of preserving and accelerating accumulation. By misidentifying humanity as the perpetrator of capitalism's crimes, we trade in cheap misanthropy, imagining that it is somehow our tragic destiny to despoil our home. Not only is this profoundly convenient for the systemic and corporate forces of ecological destruction, it traps us in a kind of self-loathing political stasis. Second, the revenge of nature story continues to perpetuate the unhelpful idea that humanity and nature are fundamentally opposed. As Jason W. Moore notes, this has long been the fundamental myth that has animated the profound and destructive arrogance of colonial, patriarchal, and capitalist worldviews. These are rooted in Christian ideologies that frame humanity as elevated above and separate from nature, endowed with a unique, godly soul, and entitled to make use of nature as it saw fit. Instead of seeing the human animal as one that has always transformed its environment and been transformed by its environment, this dualistic worldview makes the abstract notion of nature a subordinate but also threatening force. As Vandana Shiva and Miriam Mies observed decades ago now, within that ideology, women, non-Europeans, and the poor and the disabled were considered closer to nature than the idealized wealthy educated white man and treated accordingly objects of pleasure, use, and disposal. If nature can be said to be taking revenge on humanity, then, necessarily, nature and humanity are diametrically and fundamentally opposed. As I've argued elsewhere, the powerful always fear the revenge of those whom they oppress. They do so at exactly the same time and to the same proportion as they use a kind of needless, warrantless revenge to reproduce and defend their power through policing, repression, and punishment. Oppressors project onto the oppressed a capacity and desire for revenge that is the mirror image of the daily, normalized, vengeful violence that holds a system of oppression in place. So it is with the revenge of nature story. We project onto nature the kind of ruthless vengeance that is the grim reflection of the vengeance that humanity has taken on nature, and in so doing, we reaffirm precisely the myths that enabled this vengeance in the first place. 
This leads to the third problem. The revenge of nature narratives narcissistically project human intentions and behaviors onto other animals. This has the effect of simplifying what are complex and interwoven ecological phenomena. Revenge is, as James Baldwin so wisely put it, a human dream. It is the name we have given to the particularly human combination of premeditated malice, unanswered injustice, and moral outrage. Do other animals take revenge? We do appear to have evidence that some species that we consider intelligent, including other primates and cetaceans, sometimes undertake what appear to us as retributive actions. Many of us have house pets that we would swear take revenge for idle neglect or other petty crimes, throwing up hairballs on the bed or shredding our favorite shoes. But to call this revenge is to project onto other animals a complex human dream in a way that is inaccurate and often unhelpful. As is the case with the vindictive Gibraltar orcas, revenge offers us a profoundly simplified explanation for what is, if we are to trust those scientists who have dedicated their lives to the whale's care and study, much more complicated. We simply don't know why the orcas are acting the way they do, and if we have learned anything about ecosystems and their impact on animal behavior, it is that they are profoundly complex. As Donna Haraway makes clear, our fate as a species, and the fate of thousands of other species, depends on us humans coming to terms with the complexity of natural systems and their dense, beautiful networks of interreliance, one indicator of which is animal behavior. Simply projecting our own narrative of revenge, cast in the forge of human culture, onto animals as a convenient explanation for how we feel about animals' behavior, is no help at all. This leads to the final problem with the revenge of nature story. It creates a kind of supernatural force called nature that somehow, in its global totality, with a supernatural intelligence, coordination, and intention, takes revenge. Leaving aside some of the more spiritualist takes on the Gaia hypothesis, there is no credible evidence for such a godlike, all-encompassing entity. Indeed, our attraction to imagining, explicitly or implicitly, that there is such a big nature out there, capable of plotting and exacting revenge, is very much like the kinds of anti-scientific conspiracy theories that today haunt the globe. In all cases, some supernatural or all-powerful force is attributed with superhuman powers. Like other conspiracy theories, this notion of nature is profoundly demobilizing. Why? Well, it would be tempting to imagine that the looming threat of nature's revenge would scare us humans straight and force us to realize that our ecocidal actions will lead to our doom. But when has this actually worked? Outside of fiction and film, that is. This approach makes a fundamental error in its theory of change, assuming that, just as nature must have woken up and taken up its sword, so too now must humanity come together and change its ways. But who is this humanity? The global supermajority of scientists have been warning us for decades about the impacts of our actions and no meaningful action has been taken. Governments, with a handful of exceptions, are so beholden to capitalist forces within their own nations and around the world, they have, in spite of some pretty words, squandered those decades. Humanity as a whole will not wake up unless and until it mobilizes and organizes with clarity, intention, and intelligence through ungovernable grassroots movements capable of bringing capitalism to its knees. That goal, however, is ill-served by the revenge of nature narrative because it reaffirms one of two demobilizing ideas. First, if nature is to take revenge, then why do we humans need to rise up? 
will it not take care of the problem for us? Second, perhaps we simply deserve this revenge. Perhaps we are such poisoned and poisonous beasts that we deserve annihilation. As has been so often said, it has become easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. In a sense, we fantasize about some kind of vengeful nature as a kind of collective death drive, a lust for obliteration that stems from our unwillingness to overcome some deep contradiction. We yearn for the annihilation we believe we deserve, precisely to excuse ourselves from the hard work of preventing that fate through collective action. Now, you might rightly point out that very few people actually believe in the strong version of this argument that nature is a superhuman intelligence that is actually intentionally taking revenge on us. You might argue that advocates use this narrative for dramatic purposes to marshal public sympathy, interest, and solidarity. Perhaps so, but my argument remains that this narrative is profoundly unhelpful. It does not meaningfully cultivate sympathy, interest, and solidarity, let alone mobilize action or organization. Rather, it reaffirms many of the ideological stories that have led us to this point, the recasting of capitalism's crimes as humanity's fate, creating a false distinction between humanity and nature, and projecting onto nature convenient narratives rather than striving for deep understanding. The revenge of nature narrative contributes to a doom-scrolling obsession with our own helplessness in the face of the destructive rampage of the capitalist system we have created. Orcas, then, are not taking nature's revenge, but we can and we should. We should avenge the destruction of our kindred species and our fellow humans at the hands of capitalism. We should do so by abolishing that system before it can continue its own reckless, relentless revenge. We have heard all too much about climate grief. What of climate vengeance? As the late great proletarian troubadour Utah Phillips put it, the earth is not dying, it is being killed, and those who are killing it have names and addresses. Yet I do not think that isolated acts of revenge against individuals will actually transform things. Capitalism as a system makes every person completely replaceable, even at the top. Yesterday's CEOs and tomorrow's CEOs are the same. What, however, would it mean to avenge nature? Elsewhere I have suggested that while revenge fantasies, like the revenge of nature narrative, are profoundly demobilizing, so too is the almost universal insistence on what I call reconciliophilia, our love of just-so stories of forgiveness that substitute moral transformation of individuals for real systemic change. The avenging imaginary, by contrast, holds fast to our fury as a grounds for solidarity. A revenge fantasy that dreams we might take the oppressive, coercive, and destructive power of capital, the master's tools, for our own in the name of justice. By contrast, an avenging imaginary recognizes something more profound. We must transform power and develop new forms of life together. We must abolish the systemic sources of ecological violence, not simply its individual agents. In the case of avenging nature, this can only mean overturning capitalism as a whole, including its profoundly unhelpful ideological infrastructure.